Welcome. Today is the third Sunday in Advent. As we've been saying, Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas when we prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of Christ. Uh, I imagine that, uh, like me, your houses are beginning to get all the physical preparation for Christmas. Trees are up, lights are up, decorations are up, presents are starting to show up. We're doing the physical things necessary to celebrate. But it's just as important that we do the internal work of preparing ourselves to celebrate, to prepare our hearts, to prepare our, our minds, our souls, our spirits. So that's what we're doing as we go through these stories in Advent. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the character of Zechariah, and we said that we want to be like Zechariah at the end of his story, not at the beginning of his story. We want to be the Zechariah who trusts God. Today, we're going to look at another character, and that is the character of Mary. We're looking at these characters that are told, do not be afraid, and we'll see today in our story from the scriptures that the angel says that to Mary, just like he said that to Zechariah. So read along with me. I am in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 26 down to verse 38. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married, to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now if you think back to the story we read a couple weeks ago about Zechariah, there are a ton of similarities between these two stories. Both Zechariah and Mary are alone when an angel appears to them. Both of them are, are, are startled. I mean, again, you can imagine a celestial being suddenly being there when you think you are alone. And when they startle, the angel says the same thing to him. In fact, it's the same angel. It's Gabriel, we're told in both times. And Gabriel says to them, don't be afraid. And then Gabriel announces a birth. He says, there's going to be a son born to you. And he tells them what to name the boy. He tells Zechariah, name the boy John. He tells Mary, name the boy Jesus. And then he goes on to tell about this boy, what he's going to do. If you remember all the things we talked about that the angel said to Zechariah that John would do, and here it's even more so. The angel tells Mary who this is going to be, how important this child Jesus is going to be. And then, continuing the similarities, both Mary and Zechariah respond. They both respond. They have a question and a comment. 
And the angel then responds back to them. Now, the order's a little different in the two stories. In Zechariah, he has his question and his comment, and then the angel responds. In Mary's case, she asks her question, the angel gives a response, and then she makes her comment. But we see these same patterns moving all the way through both these stories. Do you remember the question that Zechariah asked? He said to the angel, literally, by what sign will I know this? He said to the angel, you need to give me a sign. How am I going to know this? You need to show me something miraculous. And then he goes on to make his comment. And his comment is, I am old. My wife is old as well. And I told you that the way he says it, it's very direct. It's rude in his culture. You don't talk like this. And then the angel responds back to Zechariah, and the angel answers his question. He, the question he asked was, by what sign will I know this? And the angel says, by this sign, you're mute. And then Zechariah can't talk. He asks for a sign. That's his question. He gets a sign. And I told you that if I was doing sort of Jeff's paraphrase version of this story, I would have Zechariah saying, prove it. No way. Prove it. That's what he says to the angel. Now, what's Mary's question to the angel? Her question is very straightforward. Like, she's not asking for a sign. She's not being rude when she speaks. She simply says to the angel, how? How can this happen? You know, I know where babies come from, and that ain't going to happen. Uh, we think Mary is probably a teenager at this point. She's a young girl. She's 15, 16, 17 years old. That would be the normal time you would be betrothed to be married in this culture. Um, she is a young girl confronted with this angel and this incredible um, th- announcement that the angel makes to her. And she asks the question that anybody, I think, would have asked, like, How? How can that be possible? And just like Zechariah, the angel answers her. The angel's answer is God. God is going to do this because the angel says when God speaks, it happens. God can do whatever he wants. This is what God is going to do. Just like Zechariah, she asks a question and she gets an answer. And then Mary makes her comment. And remember, Zachariah's comment was, was rude. It was direct. It was like, I'm, I'm old. Mary's comment is 180 degrees away from that. She says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You know, if Zachariah, you know, if, again, if I'm, I'm trying to kind of paraphrase it, make it more colloquial, Zachariah says to the angel, prove it. Mary says to the angel, do it. Mary responds to this announcement so different from Zechariah. She does not respond with skepticism or cynicism. She does not respond with, with aggression or rudeness. She responds with, I am the Lord's servant. The Lord is my master. Whatever he says, that's good and right. Her response is so different And remember what she's being asked. When Zechariah got this announcement, it was all good. 
Everything about it was good. You're going to have a son, which they've been praying for for decades, it looks like. He's going to be a joy to you. He's going to be a joy to everybody. There's all these allusions to famous people from the Old Testament. Samson, David, Jeremiah, all these sorts of things. Everything he is told is good. Mary has just been told something equally incredible and good. But there's a downside to it for her. She is going to be an unwed teenage mother in this culture. We said two weeks ago that, you know, Elizabeth, she has shame and disgrace because she's not a mother. That would be looked on suspiciously by her peers. She says that the Lord has taken away my disgrace. Wow. Her disgrace is nothing compared to what Mary is going to face. And yet what Mary says to God is yes. Yes, your will be done. I am your servant. Do it. Whatever you have planned, Lord, Mary says, I am your servant. Do it. Now, we're not even 10 minutes into this sermon, and I am already giving you the punchline, okay? As we prepare ourselves for Advent, if you think God is speaking to you, say yes. Say yes. If God talks to you about something, if you feel like that the Holy Spirit is pressing on you, if you feel like he's saying something to you, you read it in the scriptures or you feel like you hear the Spirit or you're getting these nudges, say yes. You know, I wonder if Mary could have said no. There are a few people in the Bible who really don't have a choice. God comes to Moses and says, you're going to lead my people out of Israel. And Moses throws up all these excuses and God answers all of them. And then finally Moses just says, no, please send someone else. And God says back to him, no, you're going. Like he doesn't have a choice. Jonah, same way. God says, go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah says, uh, yeah, no thanks. And hops a boat going in the exact opposite direction. And no, you know, God, God sends a storm and a fish. And I mean, Jonah's going. He does not have a choice. But for the vast, and I mean vast, 99.9999 some odd percent people in the scriptures, you have a choice. You always have a choice. Like think about All the sermons, if you've been hanging around in our church for a while, all the sermons you've heard me preach, all the things I have told you, you need to do. All the times I have suggested courses of action to you, and all the times I've been a lot stronger than just suggesting things to you. You don't have to do them. Nothing makes you do them. God does not come in and say, you have to do this. You can read the scriptures, know what God says, put them down, walk away, and not do it. It is always your choice. We have these big debates about the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man, and how can those two things coexist, and and, uh, I don't know. What I do know is God is incredibly committed to our free will. It is so, so important to him. It was so important to him right at the beginning with Adam and Eve. It is so important to him that we be allowed to choose. And so he almost always allows us to choose. I don't know if Mary could have said no. We'll never know because she didn't. She said yes. If you want to know God, I mean, if you want to experience him, I I don't just mean know about him, like rattle off facts about his characteristics or something. I mean, know him, then say yes to him. 
when he speaks to you, say yes. And again, I'm not even just talking about obedience. Obviously, if you read things in the scriptures, then you need to do them or not doing as the scriptures command or forbid. I'm talking about those nudges you get. I'm talking about those announcements. When you, God is offering you something, say yes. So I want to tell you another story. Another story about a young girl. She lived over a thousand years before Mary, but she also lived in the town of Bethlehem where Mary will eventually give birth. Her name was Ruth. She's probably about 10 years older than Mary. Her story is found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. She's probably, you know, if Mary's 15, 16, 17, she's probably 25, 26, 27 years old. She lives in Bethlehem, but she is already a widow. Her husband died quite young. She lives with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is also a widow. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he has also died. In fact, all the men in the family have died. Uh, There was another brother, and he has died. They are two widows alone living in Israel during the time of the book of Judges. If you have ever read the book of Judges, you know that is not a good time to be two widows living alone in Israel. It was a lawless, violent time. But they have to eat, and there aren't a lot of options open to them. So Ruth goes off and does what is called gleaning. Gleaning is a law in the, the law of Moses, who is just a, she's a few hundred, he's a few hundred years before the time of Ruth, that says that you have to allow the poor to come into your fields and harvest their own food. Now, there are rules. They can't just harvest anything all the time, and, and there, there's lots of structure around it, but still, The basic thought is you have to allow the poor to come into your fields, harvest your crops, and take them away so they can eat them themselves. As you can imagine, this is not a popular law with landowners. And as near as we can tell, it was rarely followed. But by God's grace, Ruth ends up in the field of a man named Boaz, who does still follow this law. He has told his workers to leave the edges for the poor. He's told them not to bother anyone who comes in and gleans. And so for the three months of the harvest, Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, are doing pretty well because Ruth is going every day to Boaz fields. You know, there's barley harvest and smelt harvest and wheat harvest and, and she's just following right along as they harvest all of his fields. And she's working all day, but she's not taking it to their storehouses. She's taking it home for her and Naomi. But then the harvest ends. <laughs> and now you've got nine months when there's nothing to harvest. How are they going to eat? And so Ruth, at her mother-in-law's urging, goes back to Boaz and asks him to marry her. Now to us, you know, this is a romantic story. And maybe it was. Like the Bible doesn't say anything about how Ruth and Boaz actually felt about each other. But what she says to Boaz is not, hey, I've seen you making googly eyes at me all over the last three months. You know, why don't we make it official? What she says to him is, you are a kinsman redeemer. Now that's a very specific legal term. And what she's asking him for is a leveret marriage. Leveret comes from the book of Leviticus. It means Leviticus. It's the the marriage listed in the law. And what it said was that if a man died and he had no sons that could inherit his property, work his estate, take care of his wife and any other people in the family, um, that a close relative, a, a brother, a cousin, a nephew, an uncle, somebody had to take his wife in and take care of her. 
Now, now, that's pretty normal. I don't think anybody would be surprised at that. What's unusual is the law goes on to say that he can't just, he just take her into his household. He must marry her and have children with her because the first son that's born will not be his son. It will be considered the son of the man who died. So all of his estate will be held in trust by this other man until the son comes of age. And then it will be given to him and he will take it off. In other words, this is a big financial hit. You're going to, let's say it was your brother. You're going to take over your brother's lands. You're going to have to build them up, take care of them, see that they're worked, but they're not yours. You're not going to keep them. You're not going to pass them on to your children. You're going to give them to the first son of any children that were born between you and your brother's wife. And then he is going to take them and they become his estate. You can't pass them on to your kids. And he's not going to take care of you when you get old. That's one of the reasons you have children in ancient societies. They're your social safety net. You take care of them. You raise them when they're young. Then as they're older, they they work. They become part of your household. Then eventually as you are old, they take care of you. He's not going to take care of you. He's going to take care of his mom, but he's not going to take care of you. You're going to invest all this in this child. And then he's going to leave and take all of that with him. And again, it wasn't very popular and it's not recorded other than here that anybody ever did it. Ruth comes to Boaz and says to Boaz, you are a kinsman redeemer. In other words, she's asking for this leveret marriage. Marry me, take me in, and our first son will actually be considered in the line of my first family. And Boaz says to her, and again, you know, if this was a great romance, maybe it was, but that's not what he says to her. What he says to Ruth is, everyone knows your character. Everyone knows you are a godly, noble woman. Absolutely. I would be happy to do this for you. But he says, I'm not the closest relative. There's someone else that actually it's his responsibility first. So Boaz goes to this guy and he says, hey, we got to take care of Naomi and Ruth. She would like to sell her property. Would you like to buy it? You're the closest relative. And he says, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a deal, right? Get all this more land. <laughs> and then Boaz springs it on him. Um, but we're going to do this the right way. You know, we're, we're going to keep the old laws here. You also need to take Ruth as your wife. And what's not said, but what's understood is this is a leveret marriage. Yeah, sure, you're going to pay for Naomi's property, and for the next, what, 20 years or something, you will work it, you will receive benefit from it, but the first son that's born to you and Ruth, when he comes of age, you're going to give him all that property you bought, and any buildings you built on it, they're his. Any uh, things you did to advance the property, to improve it, they're all his. He is going to take all that When this guy hears that, uh uh-oh, that's what we're doing, he's like, "Uh, sorry, no, no, I'm out. That wouldn't make any financial sense. He says, oh, no, I'm not going to endanger my estate. It's like, no way. I'm not going to lose money on this deal. And he walks away. And Boaz says, okay, great. Then I'll do it. And he does it. He buys the property from Naomi. He takes Naomi and Ruth into his house. He marries Ruth, and they have a son. The son's name is Obed. And it says at the end of Ruth that Obed is given to Naomi and everyone in town says Naomi has a son because that's his legal standing in the town. 
He's not the son of Boaz and Ruth. He's the son of Elimelech and Naomi. He's going to inherit Elimelech's land. Elimelech's sons have died. He doesn't have any more. Obed becomes us the son of Elimelech. So in Hebrew, his name would be Obed ben Elimelech. Ben means son of. Or in, in Aramaic, another one of the languages here, it's Bar. So you read about, in you know, the famous movie, Ben-Hur. The character's name is Judah Ben-Hur. That means his name is Judah, son of Hur. So he would have been Obed ben Elimelech. Obed, son of Elimelech. Now, here's the thing. Obed shows up about a half a dozen times in the Bible. Do you know how often he is called Obed ben Elimelech? Zero. What's he called? Every time he's spoken of, Obed ben Boaz. That's not his name. His name's Obed ben Elimelech. He's in the line of Elimelech. He's given to Naomi. Naomi has a son. He's in that line. No. No, he's the son of Boaz. Because Boaz said yes. Because Ruth came to Boaz and said, will you take care of us? Will you do what is right, though it will cost you? And Boaz said, yes. Yes. And Obed is the son of of Boaz, everywhere in the scriptures. The book of Ruth ends with his genealogy. Obed, son of Boaz. Jesse, son of Obed. David, son of Jesse. Obed is the grandfather of the greatest king who ever lived. And his name's not Obed ben Elimelech. His name, he's named after the man who said yes to God, Obed ben Boaz. And Matthew will pick that up because he's not just the grandfather of David. He is the great, 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 some odd grandfather of Jesus, the Messiah. And Matthew will quote that same genealogy, Obed, the son of Boaz. And then just to make sure you didn't miss it, Matthew will add, whose mother was Ruth. Boaz says Yes, and yes, it costs him, just like it cost Mary. It cost Boaz money. It cost him his estate. We think from other things in the, the story that Boaz had grown children at that time. He has to dilute his estate. Some of the inheritance that could have gone to those kids may now go to this other line when Obed comes of age. But God offers him a chance to do what is good and right. And he says yes, just like I think what God is offering to Mary. And wow, does Mary say yes. If you want to know God. I mean, if you want to experience him, to understand him, then say yes to him. When you think that he's saying something to you, say yes. Now, okay, I get it. First question is, well, how do I know it's God? How do I know it's God speaking to me? All right, so this isn't in the text, but we're going to jump off a little bit to talk about this because it's important. There's four ways we discern whether God is talking to us, whether something is from God, right? First is prayer in the Holy Spirit, right? We talk to him. We ask him. We think we're hearing something from him. We're like, Lord, is that, is that you? Is that something I should do? Okay? The second is the scriptures. We go to the scriptures. If you think God is telling you something that the scriptures forbids, that ain't God, if you think God is telling you to leave your spouse, 
That's not God. That's the evil one. Stop listening to that voice. You now know that voice is not God. You can ignore it. If the scriptures forbid it, we're done. You don't do it. If the scriptures command it, thou shalt. Okay, absolutely. We'll do it. We think that's God. The scriptures say do it. Yep, that's definitely God. God's voice and God's word are always going to match 100%. But there's a lot of life that isn't scriptures say thou shalt or scriptures say thou shalt not. So first is prayer, the spirit talking to us. Second is the scriptures. Third is wise counsel. Scripture says get Wise counsel. It says plans succeed when you have a lot of good counsel. If you think God is telling you something, if you think God is pressing something on you, go talk to someone about it. Find some people you trust. Get some counsel. Put it before some people that you think are godly, that can hear God's voice. Ask them. Ask them to, to pray into it with you. And then the fourth one is circumstances. Like what's going on around you? Because, you know, a lot of times we don't have time for counsel. So best advice I've heard on this comes from one of our deacons, Rob Weaver, who has what he calls the two-second rule. You know, if he's driving down the road and something happens and, and he senses that little push from the Holy Spirit, you know, so he's driving by someone and there's someone broken down on the side of the road. And he senses this, this push from the Spirit of, oh, I should stop and help them. Right? Well, Obviously, the scriptures don't say, yes, you shall always stop for everyone on the side of the road. And they don't say, you shall never stop for everyone on the side of the road. And you throw up prayers and, and can ask God if that's true. But you can't get on the phone as you're driving along. You know, I passed this guy. And what do you think? Could, could we get together next week and maybe talk about whether I should stop and help him? You're just in the circumstances right there. Two-second rule. Uh, Rob says, you know, I just try and put it out of my mind for two seconds. Like if I can do that, if I can put it out of my mind and then, you know, all of a sudden a minute later I realize, oh, I forgot all about that. That wasn't God's spirit. He said, but if it nags me, right? If I can't get it out of my mind, if, if it, for the next two seconds, it's just there poking me. Yep, that's God. I need to turn around. The Holy Spirit speaking to you, the scriptures, wise counsel, circumstances. Those are the ways we know what God wants us to do. If you think the Lord is telling you something, work your way through those other things. Ask him if this is him. See if the scriptures say anything. Get some counsel. What are the circumstances? What's going on around you? You know, if you don't have time, use the two second rule. But say yes. That's how we grow. That's how we come to know God. That's how we learn to hear his voice, to distinguish it from the myriad of other voices that are going on in the world and in our head. If the Lord says something to you, be like Mary, say yes. If the Lord offers you a chance to do good and you know it's from him, like Mary, Mary knew it was God. There is a celestial being standing in front of her. Okay, I get it. Most of the time, that's never happened to me. It's probably never happened to you. But if you think the Lord is offering you a chance to do good, oh, say yes, take it. That's how we come to know him. That's how we learn to hear his voice. As you are preparing yourself for Christmas, is the Holy Spirit nudging you at all? Oh, if you have that little tingle in your brain, that, that little you know, thump in your heart or catch in your throat, well, however it is that God speaks to you, look into that. Pay attention to that. Say yes to that if you think it's God. 
That that is how you come to know him. That's how you come to be his child and to experience him. So let me ask you, where do you need to say yes to God this Advent? Like, where has God's spirit been nudging you? Where has God's spirit been talking to you? Or, you know, people are bringing things up. You know, we talk about circumstances, right? Stuff just keeps coming up. You're like, that, that can't be random. Like, where have people said things to you that you thought, oh, I should pay attention to that? Where do you need to say yes to get yourself ready for Christmas? To, to know God, to be prepared, to truly celebrate joyfully on Christmas morning. Now, not just the good food and the family and the presents and all those things are wonderful. They're wonderful expressions of God's good gift to us. But to really celebrate that Jesus has come back for us. That, that he hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't left us alone. That we ran away from him. And he came after us. He entered into our world. Where do you need to say yes to God this Advent season? Like Mary said, yes, I am the Lord's servant. Do it. You need to say yes like Boaz said yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. He knew this was the good and right thing. He was keeping the law. He knew what she was asking. And he said, yes. Though it was going to cost him, and it certainly cost Mary, where do you need to say yes this Christmas? So let me pray over us as we close. And I'll ask God to speak to us. As I'm praying, you pray as well. See if the Lord says anything to you. All right, see if something comes into your mind or, or something comes into your heart. Something is pressing on you. Perhaps that is God's spirit speaking to you. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray for my brothers and sisters now. Everyone who's listening to me, whenever they're listening to me, I am bound by time and space, but you are not. Anyone who's listening to me now, Jesus, I pray that you, through your spirit, would speak to them. Are there things that you want them to say yes to? Oh Lord, are there places where we, we need to obey? Are there places where we need to do what is right or stop doing what is wrong? But are there places where you are offering to us Places where we should say yes to experience you fully, to know more of what it means to be your sons and daughters. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Jesus, you would speak to them in ways they can understand. You would speak to them in ways that get their attention, that you would speak loudly. And I pray you would give them courage to obey you, even though it might be costly, like it was for Boaz, like it was for Mary. Jesus, I pray you would speak to your people that we would hear you and we would respond. That is the best thing that can happen to us. What you want is always best. The best thing we can ever do is say yes to you. And I pray this in your name, Lord, always. We love you and we're yours. Amen.